When I first met Ajahn Chah, which was, uh, to me, an unbelievable 42 years ago, It's still very fresh in my memory. Still lives in a very vivid way. He had come to the UK. He'd been invited by the English Sangha Trust, which was set up in 1956, to bring over monastics, at that time monks, to set up a Vihara in England. And the chairman of that trust, a man called George Sharp, had gone to Thailand to see if Ajahn Chah would be willing to consider such a proposal. And when he got to Pong in the northeast of Thailand, in Ubon Rachatani you know, to um, make this request would he come to England and consider setting up shop Ajahn Chah had him, Ajahn Chah had him sit at the, the bottom of the line and was uh, just wanted to sort of test him out a bit you know is this guy expecting special favours is he able to endure a bit is he able to be no one special? <laughs> and apparently it seems that George Sharp managed to pass the test. <clears throat> and so Ajahn Chah came and uh, he brought three monks with him. Ajahn Sumedho, Ajahn Anando. Ajahn, actually four monks, Ajahn Viradhammo and Ajahn Kemadhammo. So I was sitting at the time that he first came, in 1977, I was sitting on a large retreat outside of Oxford. I'd just begun to meditate, being taught by a Burmese monk called Ajahn or um, U. Rewatadhamma. And it was in the lineage, so to speak, of Ubakin. So the practice, there were tapes by Goenkaji. Um, I really didn't quite know what we were doing. Rewatadhamma couldn't really speak English. I certainly couldn't speak. Burmese. <laughs> but I did understand something like watch your breath. Um, I had a terrible time. I have no idea why I continued. I tried to escape. It wasn't very successful. I made a big plan and um, decided to, to leave when everyone was having tea so no one would see me. I packed my little suitcase and started to walk down the sweeping driveway. It was an old stately home that you get in the UK, all built on colonial assets, of course. It's another story, but I was going down the sweeping driveway, 
And I turned around and suddenly realized that everyone, all 70 meditators, were sitting, looking out of the bay windows down that driveway. So I leapt over the fence into the field to try and disguise myself and found myself sort of wading through nettles and this sort of prickly plant and trying to get out. And... (laughs) And I got to the to the road, and being a, a poor student, um, didn't really have any money, so I started to hitchhike, and no one picked me up. So after a few miserable hours, I'm sure it was in the rain. <laughs> Probably wasn't, but it was like grey, rainy kind of perception about that experience. I waded back up through that field, unpacked my suitcase and lay on my bed in complete and utter despair, and eventually rallied to go back into this hall. I was at the back on a huge pile of cushions. I really couldn't sit for longer than about two minutes and being in agony and complete and utter confusion. And I realized no one had really paid any attention to me at all, and no one really cared. (laughs) So I really lived from meal to meal in that retreat. And the one person that showed a little bit of, of a smile was the cook. So I was very grateful for him and um, proceeded to overeat every meal and stagger back. And Anyway, at some moment I did have a peaceful perhaps five or ten minutes and I had some sort of sense that this, there was something in this which led me back into another retreat a few months later. And it was on that second retreat and again, it was uh, this uh, home was run by uh, Umat Soa and Mrs. Soa. They had uh, left Myanmar, then Burma, in the 1960s in the political ructions that were going on. And they had bought this huge home, stately place. And they were running these retreats in the Nissan huts in the back, which were huts that had been erected in the war, Second World War, um, for evacuees from London. So we were in those huts. We weren't actually in the, in the big st- uh, stately home, um, which Mrs. Saw was trying to run. She was a tiny woman. And I landed up living there for a while trying to help her, which was a mission in and of itself. But anyhow, we were sitting in those huts and I I really didn't really, to tell you the truth, get a lot of very skillful meditation instruction. So what I picked up in my rather garbled way is that you just sat and didn't move until you exploded into enlightenment. And you just endured whatever pain came along and you just sort of kept looking at sensations like a snapping turtle. So that's kind of what I was doing. And it didn't really go very well, as you can imagine. Anyway, in the midst of that, and there were 70 of us doing young people from all over Europe, all snapping turtles, all competing to to explode first. (laughs) It was all very serious and somewhat misguided. Um, but anyhow, in the middle of all of this, one day we were sitting in our rows and the, the front of the hut door opened 
And these two men walked in in robes. One was Ajahn Chah and one was Ajahn Sumedho. And Ajahn Chah was sort of round, short, round, squat. He sort of looked a bit like a, a frog, actually. He had this big belly and this sort of, you know, this sort of... Um, well, actually, I probably shouldn't say that. I'm sure I'm going to get struck by a lightning bolt right now. But he did have this sort of rather squatty look to him. Um, this sort of rotund man, but this incredible gravitas of presence. And then this very tall, at that time, lanky Westerner. And so they were rather odd together. And then they had these robes on and the vibe that came off them. I felt like they'd landed from outer space. They really were from a whole other... I'd never seen anything like this. They were from a whole other world. But there was something very galvanizing about their energy. I felt very pulled immediately. And the first thing that Ajahn Chah did... Of course, I didn't really even know we were doing Buddhism at that point. So there was this Buddha rupa, this Buddha statue, and we just thought it was some fancy art piece. So, you know, when we were getting the hut ready, we just sort of picked it up and shoved it off in the corner. So the first thing Ajahn Chah did, he saw this Buddha rupa off in the corner with cobwebs on it, and he picked it up very reverently, and he put it in the center somewhere. I don't know if he grabbed a chair or something. And then he bowed. He bowed to this image. And for me, that was the first transmission of Ajahn Chah's teaching, was this bow, because I'd never seen that. The power of seeing him do this bow, I just felt I somatically understood something. It was like, this is the perfect statement that you make in life. This is the most profound way you can be in life is to is to bow, is to meet it with a bow. That's somehow, I didn't really have the language or wouldn't have articulated it like that at that time. But that's what I understood. So I snuck out of the retreat, which of course was very forbidden, to track down this teaching he was giving to Oxford students and to, to pitch up for that. And um, because I, I was already sort of smitten. And so he was sitting there talking in Thai and it was being translated. And somehow I understood. Um, I can't remember what he said, but I remember sitting there thinking, this is really good. This is really brilliant. This is really true. And at the end of that talk, he said, if you've been sitting here thinking this is good or bad, you haven't been listening properly. And I thought, that's really good. (laughs) (laughs) So then I understood something about listening, you know, this deeper listening. Listening beyond our views, beyond our reactions, beyond our assumptions. And this was very much part of Ajahn Chah's transmission. Just don't assume you know, because you know, just keep being fresh and listening. He was very Zen-like in that way. And as it rolled on, I would sort of find ways. Ajahn Chah was there for that time, and I tried to find ways to hang out with him, and then he came back two years later. 
by that time I was living in a in a sort of meditation community. We were like transforming hippies coming off the sort of festival trail and other trails, which not to be mentioned in such a holy, reverent space, um, and <laughs> setting up shop as, you know, early meditators and trying to host these retreats. Um, and it was a very important experience for me because it began to ground a regular practice. We'd sit an hour in the morning and an hour in the evening, which I found completely excruciating for years. Um, and all I knew that I had to do was just sit there and hang on. And then one day again, when I'd made my list of what things I had to do, where what I could do with my life as a, as a 22-year-old, I think, at that time. And I'd made this, you know, at the bottom was this possibility of perhaps, maybe, as a last absolute resort, if nothing else worked, and like it's sort of, the, it's like on the equivalent of death, was to perhaps check out a monastery. And that very day I made that list, there was an unexpected knock at the door of our community house, which was in a little village called Amberley in West Sussex which actually the castle next door, Elton John bought at one point, <laughs> just as a sideline, this weird English setup. <laughs> so anyway, we opened the door and Ajahn Chah and Ajahn Ananda were there. Ajahn Ananda was an American. He'd been in Vietnam. He'd been completely disillusioned. He was a very tough young man, brought up on the streets of Buffalo, um, I think in Virginia. I was a sort of street kid and had joined the, the military and gone out and sort of willingly and all full on to Vietnam and then got completely and utterly disillusioned and then landed up wandering around for a year or so in Asia and then washed up on the shores of Ajahn Chah's monastery and became a monk. By the time I met him, he was about 10 years or so into being a monk when he first came to the UK and was an incredibly disciplined monk and really a fine practitioner. But he'd had half of his head almost blown out. He got um, shot. Um, And so when he shaved his head, he has a big hole in the back of his head, um, which he eventually, you know, fast-forwarding to when he actually disrobed, not long after Kilisar and I disrobed, he was very upset when we disrobed, but it sort of triggered his own leaving of the monastery after about 20-odd years or so, maybe longer. Um, eventually, he died a few years after leaving the monastery. He had a brain tumor um, that got triggered from that wound. So he had a lot of trauma as he actually was a practitioner that we, we didn't understand in those days and he was trying to deal with from that whole experience. But anyway, at that point, backtracking that knock at the door, I opened the door, and there, and there was Ajahn Chah and Ajahn Anando, and I just thought, oh, no, it's going to have to be the monastery. <laughs> <laughs> it just felt like so synchronistic, you know. So they came in, and we, we were sort of all over the place, you know, and he just came into this room, and it was like, 
everyone just got galvanized like iron filings to a magnet around the presence of Ajahn Chah. And I found my body, I didn't think about it, but I found my body bowing down to him. I just, there was just such an impact from his quality of his presence. And we sat around the dining room table and I didn't have a sense of etiquette and how you do that and distance. And I just sat right next to him because I was like, like that iron filing. And he was completely unfazed. It wasn't like, oh, go away, you know, distance. And he, he was quite amused, actually. He just looked around and he was smiling and looking at us and just sort of looked, took it all in, these young people trying to meditate. And he just said, well, have you had enough yet? As I said the other night, well, how much more experience, how much more tanha, uh, craving how much more dukkha do you need to get the message? And then we, uh, we put him in the outhouse and it was so, I mean, I can't believe we did that. It was so sort of grubby, you know, it was all full of cobwebs and dust and debris. Um, we, got the, we got the idea he couldn't stay in the house because he wouldn't be able to stay under the same roof as women. So we, we shoved him in this, this sort of shed almost. And, uh, and then he just got a broom and started cleaning it up. He wasn't bothered, you know. He wasn't like, you know, I need a palace or anything. He just cleaned it all up. And then <laughs> we offered him a meal. And we made chips for him, like French fries. And he hadn't had that before. And I remember him picking them up and looking at them and sort of, okay. And we were sitting in front of him watching him eat. And, you know, I had the idea that we should try and entertain him. (laughs) So, So I said to him, would you like to go to the seaside, as we call it in England? So I had this idea we'd do a picnic at Littlehampton or something. And he looked at me as if I was sort of out to lunch, which I was. And he just said, "Well, you know, would you, uh, you know, uh, would you like to see the the, the the sea?" And he said, "I've already seen it." <laughs> so that idea got got shelved, and, um, and it was just it was it was just something about how he was so immediate in his presence and such a fruit of the practice so lucid and so responsive to time and place and so actually um, uncompromising in his challenge as well. He didn't look at me as this silly young girl, which I sort of probably was, and just say, oh, she's not someone worth trying to teach. Or He didn't look at the package so much. He went straight to the heart, whoever it was, you know, um, you know, like for example, this very brilliant PhD woman came, and she was asking him all these very sophisticated and complex questions about the um, the texts, the Abhidharma, and he just said, "Madam." <laughs> you are like someone that has chickens, but in the morning you go around and pick up the shit instead of the eggs. (laughs) Uh, 
you know, get, so his sort of uncompromising was like, get the message of what this is really about. You know, you can learn all that you like, you can study all that you want, but is the heart free? So he had this way he called stabbing the heart. He had this way of pointing back to the heart. And the frame that he would often use, he didn't teach really a lot of techniques. He taught maybe Bhutto. Or, you know, when people would come to him and say, um, can you interview me? And he'd say, well, interview yourself. You know, he wasn't really in structures so much in that way. He would point to, is there dukkha? Is there experience of struggle here? Is there experience of like and dislike, of wanting and not wanting? What's going on here? So one day when Ajahn Sumedho was sweeping as a, as a young monk, he, he'd been, you know, like many Westerners, thought quite a lot of himself, I suppose, when he arrived at the monastery and poss- possibly expected to be treated in a special way, which often Westerners were when they went into Asian monasteries. Or maybe they expected that, maybe... They were offered that. But Ajahn Chah didn't do that at all. So when you arrived again, you're at the end of the novice line, which is basically behind all of the young boys. You're not special. Um, you know, go, you know, you just join in the schedule. So anyway, after a while, you know, Ajahn Sumedho was sweeping and he had a lot of resentment and upset and he was sweeping the paths and like surely there should be something more than having to sweep the paths and Ajahn Chah just walked up to him one day and said is the suffering in the broom (laughs) is it in the is it in the path where's this dukkha you know where is the dukkha so it was a very simple message because dukkha the experience of what are we doing with the moments of our experience, where is the dukkha originating from? Where is the sense of struggle? And it's not to say that there isn't a struggle that we challenge and that there are things that we need to change. It's, it's more where do we move from when we apprehend the world and engage it? Are we adding dukkha? Or is it possible to transform and transmute that dukkha, release it, and then move from the space that arises when we're not generating dukkha, which is an altogether different space of the heart, of the mind? So he would actually, there's a lot of practitioners he noticed particularly Westerners would come and they were really wanting to get away from trouble. They were really wanting to get away from difficult experiences. They really want to have a lot of peace and calm and would get quite upset when that wasn't there. And then in the end he, would, he said, when he noticed and when he came, he came to IMS and he looked at it all and everyone doing their retreats he said, in some ways, he was really impressed. He said, this is amazing. You know, this, at that time, that wasn't really happening in Thailand. A lot of lay people practicing at depth and really interested in the core teachings and dharma. But he also said, you people are like people that have a good lawyer. 
He said, you get into trouble and then you call the lawyer to spring you out of trouble. He said, you know, you get into trouble in life and then you go on retreat and hope that's going to spring you out. And he said, what you need to understand is what gets you into trouble in the first place. So he pointed to a very important thing about how we, we, we use retreats. They're very resourcing, they're very important for us. We retreat experience, we really start to see the subtle mechanisms of the mind, the clinging of the mind, the volition and the movement into becoming something, into the self-aversion of the mind, the control mechanisms of the mind, you know, all of the patternings that many of you have spoken about in our meetings that you're seeing, that we see, as we go beneath the surface a little bit. This is the sort of work you can only really do sometimes in the quiet and the containment of this kind of a space. So it's very valuable and very precious. But as Ajahn Chah also say, don't just stay in the trenches. some point you have to move out and face the battle. And so we're strengthening for that. And we're also, as he would do, he would actually... If you, if you weren't experiencing dukkha, he'd make sure that there would be some delivered on your plate in some way or another. You're trying to be very, very peaceful. He would send you into a, into a festival somewhere or he'd get you to work with someone you really couldn't stand. Instead of trying to avoid the experience, to work with it at the mind where it appears. When he came to, after the first monastery began at, uh, in West Sussex, very near to where I had been living, and then I went one day and actually didn't come back. <laughs> I went one day from our community. I saw that the monks had started this place in Chithurst, this rumshackle, um, broken down, old, another old stately home that the person couldn't afford to keep going. And the English Sangha Trust bought that and they were offered land near it, a hundred acre forest. So I heard about this and asked one of my friends from the community, would you drive me over? Um, between going there, I'd, I'd gone to Thailand to, uh, to see Ajahn Chah because I'd felt so... I'd actually gone to continue practicing with the Goenka people in India for six months and then managed to get to Thailand to go to the Western Monastery, to try and track down Ajahn Chah, to make an offering. I saw him at some branch monastery on the Mekong, and he just sent me off to be a nun in Thailand. So I went to stay with the, the first Western nun, who was called Kung Fa, Mechi Kung Fa, who was a, an American, actually. She was called Kung Fa's golden hair. She had this long golden hair that she had shaved off. And um, I stayed with her. But I realized, you know, I was, I think, 22, and I thought, uh, back home, I've got my parents, I've got a boyfriend, I haven't told them that I'm going to do this, and I should probably go back and tell them. And So I didn't really feel that I should stay at that moment uh, in Thailand and cut all the links. I should try and do this a bit more skillfully. So... Um, 
I didn't stay that long, but uh, Kung Fa was was very inspiring to me. She um, she's been five years as a nun there. And eventually, a side story about Kung Fa is after about five years, um, she actually converted to become a, an evangelical Christian. The Christians that came into the monastery, and then she went ahead and tried to convert the monastery which was a very difficult experience for Ajahn Sumedho because he came and brought a group of Westerners, a group of British people, to be inspired, and to be inspired also by Kung Fa. But when they arrived, she was, became a little bit of a raving um, kind of evangelical. And so Ajahn Sumedho got very, very upset by this and went to Ajahn Chah and said, you know, basically get, get rid of her, get her out, you know. She's upsetting everyone. And Ajahn Chah just listened, and he said, you know, maybe she's right. <laughs> he was like, look at your mind, what are you doing around this? What are you doing around this? So anyway, that happened, I got back to the UK, and I did go to see Ajahn Chah before the monastery, and um, I went to, back to Oxford to the retreat center, and he was in residence there for a while, and I went to pay respects, and he said, what are you doing back here? Why don't you stay in Thailand? And of course, I felt terrible. And actually, Kitty Sire was sitting there. It's the first time I met him as a monk. I had no idea this would, you know, our story would land up, you know. I mean, that was future time yet to unfold. But what I did appreciate was I was trying to explain that I had this Western karma, I had to try and figure it out, and he wasn't impressed, and it was like he wasn't giving me any slack, he wasn't going to take any prisoners, it was like, no, you should have stayed. I, and then Kitty Saro piped up and he said, I understand, in this sort of you know, <laughs> weird, ac- weird accent. I was like, Who's, where's he come from? You know, <laughs> I understand what you're saying. And I thought, well, thank you, man, you know, thanks for the backup, you know. So that was my first connection with Kit Sara. Y'all. <laughs> I didn't know that I would end up spending years in Tennessee. <laughs> anyway, so from that experience, a few weeks later, I was back in the community, and I fell into this deep depression. Not everything was meaningless. I packed up with my boyfriend who was on track to get married. I thought, that's not going to happen. So, and then one day I said to this friend, can you drive me over to Chithurst? And so I got there. I also, you know, had long hair. It was the whole hippie thing. And when I arrived there, Ajahn Chah had... uh, had visited, he told Ajahn Sumedho. Ajahn Sumedho said, no, it's all going great when Ajahn Chah asked how it was going. And Ajahn Chah said, well, there won't be much wisdom here then. <laughs> you know, again, it's like that teaching of if it's difficult, that's good. <laughs> it's the Thai way, Thai forest style. Toramon, they used to call it. Which means something like torture. <laughs> like, don't be frightened of difficulty. Work with it. Don't be frightened of dukkha. So um, I remember sitting in front of this mirror. There were a few other women that had arrived. And one day, in some sort of weird trance-like state, I cut off my hair and then went to the meal. And Ajahn Smeda said to me, who's your hairdresser then? They called me Binny. That was my nickname. Who's your hairdresser? 
I said, well, you know, I don't, you know. I, actually, I didn't say anything. I was so intimidated by him and by the whole scene. Um, so that started really my monastic journey. And then deeply moving into the transmission of Lung Po Cha, uh, which was really very reflective, to reflect to this steadying of the mind, of the heart, as we've been doing, to use that steadiness, not just to, to yes, to go deeper, to gather peace, calm, focus. But then his encouragement to use that, not to have to go and do an archaeological dig, you know, all of the things that have gone wrong in my life, but if dukkha arises in particular, that fueled by the wanting and the not wanting of the mind. I don't like this, I want something else. To not to feel something is going wrong, but this is another fruit of the practice. The fruit of the practice is calm, but the fruit of the practice is to see and to know the hindrances when they arise. That this is the mind wanting. And to meet that with the steadiness that we're developing with breath and sensation or with sound or whatever nimitta we're using, whatever focal point we're using, to bring that same quality of attention that this is the experience of dukkha, how is it felt? And to just be steady there. What is the mind doing? To notice. And so that we begin the mechanism through that practice of liberating the jitta, the heart, from Dukkha that's generated from the avijja of the mind, from the mind not really knowing this teaching of the four truths, not really deeply exploring it, not understanding that dukkha is arising from the tendency of the mind to be out of tune with reality, to not understand impermanence, to not see the nature of things, to keep moving to change the furniture of our experience to find this special space that we hope we can stay in. Like that lawyer. So if dukkha is arising, to realize this is our teacher now. It has been, and always will be, is a very profound teacher. It's not something going wrong. So yes, to keep gathering as we're doing, to keep focusing, and then when the teacher arises, to steady, to breathe with that, and to know this is an opportunity. Ajahn Chah's transmission, the transmission of the Buddha, to meet the experience of dukkha. There is this experience. What is fueling that in this moment? In moments of seeing what is fueling that, the relinquishment, the release, that patinisaga and the anapanasati teaching that Kittisara is pointing to, to give back, to release, to soften out of the energetic shaping around wanting and not wanting, desire and aversion, push and pull. And in that moment's release, the momentary taste of the underlying peace that's always here, always now, unmoving, ever inviting, ever revealing its nature.
These great teachers are still with us. Even the Buddha. They're with us through this practice. And when we meet the unconditioned mind, the heart that is, we meet the Buddhas, the Tathagata. And when we meet Dukkha, we meet the practice of the Buddhas and the awakened ones and the great teachers. We are in that lineage, in that flow of awakening. So to take courage, nothing's going wrong. (laughs) This is just how it is. And how it is, is the place that we establish our practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.